Hello, Steve here again, and today I have a special treat. Uh, I'm not going to talk sort of about learning modern languages. I'm going to talk about, to some extent, ancient languages and learning, and have a very interesting guest, Luke Ranieri of Polymathy. And remember, before we get into this, if you enjoy my uh, videos, please subscribe, click on the bell for notifications. If you follow me on a podcast service, please leave a review. I do appreciate it. So, Luke, I was watching your videos yesterday, really enjoyed them. The first thing that I think is interesting is the term polymathy. A lot of people think that math, math as in mathematics, means numbers, arithmetic. Please explain A, the term polymathy, and B, your interest in ancient languages. Oh, Steve, you're asking me about etymology, one of my favorite topics and something I do like to talk about on my Plymouthy channel from time to time. The Greek word manthano or mantano for an even ancient, more ancient pronunciation means I learn. So uh, that the root of it, which is that M-A-T-H, math, is about learning. So like a mathetes or mathitis, a modern Greek pronunciation, mm -hmm. is a student in uh, ancient Greek. Uh, so, uh, the, uh, so a polymath is a student of many things. And my background isn't uh, exclusively in languages. In fact, that's what I've mostly done until more recently, I'd say, as a hobby on the side, though I've been teaching languages for years. Um, uh, but also I have background in science and I have uh, done uh, military aviation. So I have these different interests that I've um, coalesced together essentially into one or two channels. My other channel being um, uh, Latin and Greek, which is uh, Scorpio Martianus. Mm -hmm. Okay. First of all, I will leave a link to Luke's channel, Polymathy, in the description box. The quality of your videos, Luke, is tremendous. The video quality, oh, the audio quality, the content, it's all excellent. And uh, I was enjoying, uh, I also saw a video, by the way, where you went around in Italy, I think it was in Rome, asking Italians if they spoke Latin. And they, <laughs> some of them thought they did, but in fact, didn't. Um, how, we have Latin at link. Uh, I haven't studied Latin at Link. One of the issues is pronunciation. How confident are we about how Latin was pronounced in, say, in Oh, that, that is a uh, fascinating, important question. Um, because we have essentially more than one standard. There are two very big standards of Latin pronunciation. Mm -hmm. And one that is probably in some ways uh, better known to the layman would be the ecclesiastical pronunciation or the traditional national pronunciation of Latin in Italy, which uh, for about 115 years has been the standard pronunciation of uh, Latin in the church. However, even before that uh, was really codified and standardized the uh, classical pronunciation, that is an attempt to reconstruct that ancient pronunciation. It's interesting too is that Latin has never, has never um, gone out of fashion completely. That is, there's always, there's always been fluent speakers in the world and writers. Uh, so whatever pronunciation these people have used has been after the end of the language being a living language, which happens about a thousand or so years ago. Um, Latin is, is pronounced in all kinds of uh, different ways. So it's, uh, I like to be not super prescriptive to say that this is, you should pronounce Latin this way, especially if they're using the great content, which is on Link. And uh, another uh, friend and colleague who's contributing a lot to Link, Carla Hurt. From Found in Antiquity. She's been putting a lot of stuff there, and I'm really, oh, well, I really glad go that she's do doing it that. Sometime. But it is true, yeah, you know. Yeah. Central Europeans say Cicero, Italians say Cicero, uh, mm -hmm. whereas presumably it's Cicero. Or am I right? Right, which is, 
You're absolutely right. And you know, most people are familiar if, in school with the classical or restored classical pronunciation. And uh, that's because the C and the G pr- uh, were pronounced ka and ga until about the 5th or 6th century AD. So it's pretty late when those specific pronunciation changes came. But we're really confident. And we know about the pronunciation from essentially three great sources. One is uh, the ancient grammarians. Ancient grammarians talk in great detail about uh, pronunciation. Um, but they don't always get everything right. They weren't, you know, linguists in the modern sense really didn't exist until the past cent- century. So uh, thanks uh, to linguistic understanding, we can uh, see how languages evolve in general and therefore understand how the pronunciation was, how it was in old Latin, pre-classical Latin, that is, and then late Latin. So we can understand quite a lot. And then the last thing would be just to look at the Romance languages, where languages, um, where uh, how Latin actually changed and evolved and then understand regular processes. Okay. And uh, another thing that's, uh, you know, I, I speak Italian, not very well, but I speak Italian and I had Latin at school. Speak very well. I've there enjoyed s- seeing you speak Italian. <laughs> uh, Latin a couple of years in school. Uh, I remember we, in order to remember the uh, declensions, we would have contests, like who could, who could decline bellum the fastest? The teacher would use a stop, stopwatch. Blah, 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 I can't remember anymore, but that was Latin. Uh, I did study Greek. Uh, at link. So tell me the difference between, let's say, ancient Greek and, uh, and are we less sure about the pronunciation of ancient Greek or not? And say <laughs> ancient, Lat- ancient Greek versus modern Greek, Latin versus, say, Italian, which presumably is the closest to, or maybe it isn't, I don't know, the relationship between these ancient languages and their modern successors. Another one of my of favorite topics. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so it's, um, for all intents and purposes, modern Greek and ancient Greek are different languages in the sense that Italian and Latin are different languages. Uh, Greeks don't like to hear that because they have a very strong affinity with their, their past and they're, they're very proud of that, which is great. Um, and the fact that both of them are called Greek leads to an inherent semantic confusion, which is interesting how, in general, words, uh, how important they really can be. Um, there, are defi- there are about as many differences between modern Greek uh, and ancient Greek as there are, say, between at least Sardinian, which is a little bit more conservative than Italian and Latin. But it, it, they're clearly, uh, they just simply don't work grammatically in the same way, though there are a lot of similarities. Um, as far as the pronunciation, you ask, how certain are we about the pronunciation? Oh, my gosh. Well, pick a century. Uh, and then oh, I can yeah. tell you <laughs> a little bit more specifically. But um, a lot of people focus, if they're interested in restoring some kind of ancient Greek pronunciation, they're interested in the 5th century pronunciation specifically of Athens. 5th century you might know, B.C. Yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. Okay, Pardon okay. me. 5th century B.C. Athens. Right. Sorry, Athens. I'm already like upside down in, in antiquity. Yeah. So. Okay. <laughs> Glad you clarified. 5th century B.C. Athens when we have, uh, we have Plato and Socrates, we have right. uh, Sophocles, Aristophanes, all these great authors that people like to read. And that's sort of the the motivation. I want to pronounce the language like these authors did. It's not necessary. One can use the modern Greek pronunciation. You can, just as one can use the ecclesiastical pronunciation of Latin to access the ancient texts. You can use any pronunciation of any of these languages. Like we access Shakespeare by means of our modern North American pronunciation sure. of English. Yeah. A modern Englishman or Scotsman or Irishman, New Zealander, Australian can all right. use whatever pronunciation. If I mean, I like to reconstruct Shakespearean pronunciation. I've had a few videos where I'd, I've done that. But um, it's, it's not, necess- not necessary for the most part unless we really want to understand the rhymes and other right. things. And I do think that's important um, to a certain extent. But it's also not practical. A lot, not everyone out, out there is a twenty language polyglot. Um, are there just a way, just to <laughs> s- interrupt briefly? 
are there sort of uh, presentations of Shakespeare in the ancient uh, with the ancient pronunciation yes the crystal uh, father son team uh david crystal and ben crystal have a lot of great recordings um i uh, have uh, a couple of uh, his books actually david crystal the father who's um done a lot of great work and at the new globe theater in london i believe it's called they do re- performances regularly or they did i don't know how it has been during the uh, pandemic years right um in uh shakespearean um pronunciation right. of the 1600s so which is fascinating and okay. and it sounds something like a mix between North American and Irish, Northern England pronunciation. It's really great. Um, I like it a lot. Uh, because whenever, as you talk, I get all these questions in my mind, so I'm going to interrupt you. The other question is, so much of the Bible was written in Greek. Uh, the Byzantine Empire was Greek, or at least the administration of it was largely Greek. So how much evolution was there, uh, say, between the Greek of the 5th century of uh, Sophocles the Greek of uh, Paul or whatever, the Bible, the Greek of the Byzantine Empire, like, it, has there been a gradual process of evolution or did they maintain oh. sort of an ancient form uh, while uh, the people in the villages and the town spoke a different Greek that became modern Greek? What's kind of the history there? What a, that is a very astute question and it's also a difficult one to answer because a lot of the things you just said are essentially true um, in the sense that it's been a slow evolution of de-evolving the language at almost every turn, but not ever succeeding completely. In the sense that there is always, in almost every single epic of Greek literature, a uh, conservative trying to restore or retain things from the past. Now, that's not untrue of even the Romance languages, which brought in a huge amount of words from Latin. Uh, Almost any time you see an AU in, uh, say, Italian... Uh, or Spanish or something. That's not a natural sound. That should be just an o. But if it's an owl in one of those languages, it means it's been uh, taken from Latin literature. Now, Greek was doing that not just from, say, the the early Renaissance or the late medieval period, as happened in, say, Italian and the other uh, Romance languages, but is constantly been going on, even from uh, the times of antiquity. So the the Kini or Koine, um, the Koine language, which is the common language, of, uh, from Alexander the Great all through the end of antiquity, which is itself changing and developing, shows um, a great admiration and um, utilization of the models of that 5th century BC classical Greek. So there's in the literature we have this, this, class, this classicizing movements which are already going on in antiquity, in the time of, say, Cicero, and then 200 years later, the time of the author uh, Lucian, a very famous Attic style um, but Koine era, era, like 700 years after that 5th century BC classical era, writing an almost perfect classical attic. And then you have um, Anna Komeno, uh, uh, the of the Komenos family. She also wrote in very, very good prose, which is very in very good imitation of that classical style. So it's really interesting how much the language has been kept from from evolving. And then there's the Katharevusa, uh, which happened uh, after the medieval, because the medieval, which was already highly archaizing, wasn't classical enough. So they tried to do that again. And right. then there was an amazing period of diglossia where there was um, uh, modern Greek, two kinds of modern Greek. One that people actually smoke, the, spoke, which is the motiki, and then katharevusa, which is only like you would hear professors speak it or something, or maybe the po- politicians, news reporters, but people didn't actually speak like that. And then finally in the 80s, if I recall, is when uh, the Motiki became the standard language of modern Greek. But even still, there are people who are like, no way, Katharevusa is great, and keep trying to put these these ancient elements in it. And 
for good or ill. I mean, I think it's really fascinating. I'm not saying it's bad or, or good or just crazy. And it's nothing like I've seen in other languages in Europe, at least. <laughs> you know, it, it is fascinating. And it was fascinating for me to watch uh, the video you and several videos you made in front of the forum or in front of, I can't remember which structure in, in Rome. But uh, that sense of being able to connect either by looking at, you know, architecture, you know, the real building from that period, or being able to read something in the original language that connects you with 2,500 years ago, it, it's a phenomenal feeling. And even the little bit of Greek that I did, which enables me to read some words in Greek, and very often in, you'll see words written in Greek, uh, and, and you can, I can read them, wow. And, and of course, uh, the influence of Greek and Latin on our languages is, is, uh, is great. Is there a renewal at all in terms of interest? Like people nowadays are learning Korean because of K-pop or they're learning Japanese for interest in anime. Is there a renewal oh, yeah. to any extent of interest in learning these ancient languages? Absolutely. Actually, that, that's why my, uh, my niece, uh, my, uh, my sister's daughter started learning Korean. So that's uh, uh, very, very astute. Yeah, what's interesting is that everybody, what I really like too about the massive uh, variety we have of language and culture, having dabbled a little bit and learning um, a bit of some modern languages too myself, is that there's just so much to offer. And I know that's what I think drives you. It's just this amazing, that's it's right. just a whole new world that opens up, right? Um, mm -hmm. And what's interesting too, I think a lot of people are fascinated, like I'm really fascinated um, reading, uh, whether prose or especially poetry, reading something where, you know, it's something as simple as like Ovid, who's one of my favorites. And I say this in a lot of, a lot of videos I've done, but I really love uh, one of his poems where he talks he, uh, to uh, his girlfriend. He says, And he's saying in that poem, I'm not here because to the Circus Maximus to um, watch the horse races. I'm here because you like that. And I'm here in this date with you so I can get to talk with you. And that is an experience that almost every single one of us have had, or we will have in our life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and this was 2,100 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what's so resonating about that is not because there's the epics. You have the Aeneas, and you have the Ulysses, and this. you have all these great right. heroes and stuff. And that, that can interest people. You have the wars, and Caesar, and Pompey, and Mark Antony. And there was a time where I found those things interesting, but I, just, I don't as much anymore. What really drives and captivates me is being able to read something that was written by a guy or even, even a, a gal in some, sometimes, which is great when we have even uh, uh, female authors that have been preserved, who are just expressing something that is the most human thing in, in this really great, beautiful way, just like a song that speaks to you. Because I don't think a lot of us as English speakers today, we get exposed to modern poetry that really moves us, but it's songs that do. And it's the Beatles or David yeah. Bowie, right? And, and the interesting thing is that you can connect across, you know, centuries. You can connect also across languages, uh, across cultures. So for me, in my most recent, uh, you know, involvement with, particularly with Persian, which is quite ancient, uh, and connecting with people who wrote things, who did things, uh, uh, even earlier than the Persians, Elam, uh, Sumer, and there are writings from that period. And I think part of the joy of exploring languages, whether they be modern or ancient, is that ability to sort of, you know, cultural weightlessness, traveling in time, traveling geographically, culturally into other spheres and experiencing just the extent to which we are all connected. And, uh, yeah. you know, and we're going to continue this conversation on your channel. And uh, so we could go on forever, I have a feeling. 
So um, maybe we should just say that um, we'll leave a link to your channel and we are going to have another conversation on your channel in English and possibly in Italian. I won't be able to say anything in Latin uh, and I look forward to doing that and I really thank you for uh, joining me here on my channel. It's it kind of a Hopefully, it'll stimulate some interest uh, on the part of my viewers in ancient languages. We don't have ancient Greek at length, but we do have Latin. And um, thank you. Thank you for thank being Thank you here. for having me, Steve. Really appreciate it.